what's most important to us is that consistency, that where we're putting our kids, the people that we're entrusting our children to for whatever length of time are trying to instill the same values and virtues that we are trying to instill at home. I tell our parents at back to school night every year, I said, this is not a dry cleaners. You cannot drop your children off and hope that they're going to be perfect when you pick them up. That's not the way uh, this works at all, you know. Once my oldest was old enough to ask questions, I feel like my life became and continues to be a test that I never studied for. Just all day, every day. It's like, why? This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. In today's episode, we're going to explore the concept of parents as the primary educators of their children. This is obvious, right? From day one, a child is entrusted to his or her parents, and there's a sense in which, if they don't teach them, no one else will. Acquiring language, for example, doesn't happen if no one talks to you. Going right back to Genesis when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And he didn't say, you know, do that and then you're done. There's the responsibility that comes with having children. Parents are participating in creation with God. This is Tom Burnford. I'm Tom Burnford. I'm the president, chief executive officer of the National Catholic Educational Association. He's British. Don't you love when I find people with accents to be on the show? Or is that just me? Tom points out how God teaches us. God created us, and he takes care of us, and he educates us. The Old Testament is education of the Israelites. The Gospels are Jesus educating the disciples. And the church educates the people in the church. And in a like manner, parents are responsible for the education of their children. And because education is such an immense responsibility, the church tries to help out. The church has a commitment to help parents educate their children from, you know, womb to tomb. NCEA focuses on the pre-K through 12 years, but we keep a big picture and, uh, and look to the whole, whole lifespan as well. It's just obvious, I think, in parents raising their children that they would educate their children. I mean, for most of human history, we didn't have schools, so it would have been parents who educated their children, Right. And they know what's best for their children. They they love their children in a way that obviously I can't. They want what's best for their children, obviously in a way that I can't, even though I certainly uh, pray and wish for the best for them. And quite frankly, I tell them all the time, they're going to live with these decisions long after I will. This is Jay Boren. I'm Jay Boren. I'm the headmaster at St. Benedict's Classical Academy in Natick, Massachusetts. We are a Catholic, classical, independent school. Jay said that while he always knew intellectually that parents are the primary educators. You don't really understand it, I don't think, until you have children. And your children start to go to school. So our six-year-old, Emma, has been at our school now for two years. She's going into first grade this coming year. And you do start to feel this, like, awesome responsibility that this child's education is in your hand. Now, I feel very blessed that we have St. Benedict's that I can send her to. I love talking to her about her her day and what she's learned. Sometimes you have to pull it out of her. He also sees how important the little things that they do at home can be. Reading to her every night, reading to them every night, and exposing them to those great things is just a, 
you feel an immense amount of responsibility, but the joy that comes from it is important too. Lindsay Schlegel appreciates the church's help with education, even while seeing educating her four children as her job. So I think that God has put us in this situation as parents, in my situation with biological children, to be with them from the moment they're conceived and to know them and to understand them and to guide them and to pray for them. It's a really beautiful gift. When we do it with intention, we can glorify God in those things to participate with God the same way that God is our father, which is something that I've understood a lot more in my parenthood. Who is Lindsay, you ask? My name is Lindsay Schlegel. I am a daughter of God, a wife, a mother, a writer, an editor, and the author of Don't Forget to Say Thank You and Other Parenting Lessons That Brought Me Closer to God. Lindsay feels keenly the responsibility of primary educator. It can feel like too much pressure. When we had our third child, a friend told me, you went from man to man to zone. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I did. Now, you know, there's not enough hands for people when I go places now. I literally can't hold on to them all the time, right? Like I can't control them. Even with one, you can't control that other person. There has to be some understanding of free will. Sometimes it seems like everybody wants something at the same time. It can feel like I'm failing a lot. It can feel like I can't do, I tell them all the time, I can't do all the things. I can do some of the things, but I can't do all the things, and I certainly can't do them all at the same time. And when I asked Tom Burnford if he ever felt that way... Does that ever feel like a lot of pressure as a father? Absolutely. I think it's supposed to feel pressure, to be honest with you, because you're responsible for the formation of children of God and helping them to grow, to encounter and know the Lord, and secondly, to live a kind and productive life. On the other hand, when it gets tough, I pray. I know I've encountered the Lord, and that transformed my life. I know there's a bigger story than just my particular struggle or trial. So faith helps, let's put it that way, so you can deal with the pressure. Sarah Safranik can find it overwhelming at times as well. Sometimes it's pretty terrifying, to be honest, mostly because... I see my children everywhere doing what I do. And I realize that I'm teaching them constantly without actually trying to teach them anything. Sarah and Andy are homeschoolers in Denver. I'm Sarah Safranik. I've been married how many years? Seven years. I have three children. I have a six-year-old girl and a four-year-old girl and an 18-month-old boy. My name's Andy Safranik. I've been... Married to Sarah seven years as well. (laughs) Now you've almost met all the voices in the episode by now. I know there's a lot, but I have confidence in you. Here's the last one. My name is Mary Pat Donahue, and I am the executive director of the Secretariat of Catholic Education here at the USCCB. And what does she have to say about parents as the first educators? The grace that comes with parenthood as a participation in the very creation act of God is limited only to parents. And I think the church wants to honor and respect that. And then the second thing, of course, is the principle of subsidiarity, the understanding that the authority closest to the child knows best what is in that child's best interest. And so in Catholic education, we fully support that parents are the first and primary teachers of their children. So much of what we learn as children is from observation and imitation. Here's Sarah Safranik talking about something that she does because of her dad's example. 
I was taking my children. It was homeschool co-op day, and we were barely on time, which is usually how we roll. And we were driving, and there was a little dog running on a busy street. And and for a minute, I was like, whatever, we're late. But then I couldn't help myself. I pulled over. We called the dog into the car. She didn't have tags, but then we just started driving through the neighborhood until we found somebody looking and calling. <laughs> it was her dog. We gave her the dog. We left. And I was frustrated to be late. That's a boring story about me and a dog. But my father always, 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 when he saw a stray animal, would go and try and help it find its people. It was always so frustrating to us growing up because it was always like we were on the way somewhere and it was going to make us late. Or like, why do we have to deal with this random dog right now? And I can think of other things that my father tried to teach me, like that I should clean my room or be an organized person, but he was never that, dare I say. And I am not that either. <laughs> but I will never be able to walk by a stray dog. And that's, that's just a thing that I'm going to keep probably doing in perpetuity because, because that was what I learned. That was what I saw him doing. And of course, kids pick up on what their parents say all the time. My son's first phrase seems to be, oh yeah, which makes me realize how often I say that to him because he babble and I'll say, oh yeah. And, and so now it's his thing that he says to everybody in all contexts, but that it extends to more things than that. Just like the way, the way I hear my oldest speaking sternly to the younger ones and I realize, oh, that's my tone of voice right there. This is a common thread with Tom and Lindsay, too. When my kids are downstairs and they're yelling, I yell at them, stop yelling. Stop yelling! That's education right there. And it's effective, right? They yell because I yell. It's pretty simple. You're the primary educator of your child, and they will do what they see you doing. I'm always struck by the joys of the fact that children will do what you do more than they'll do what you say. At one point, I heard my older son yelling at my younger son something about their Legos or something they were playing. And his phrasing was clearly something he'd gotten from me. It was kind of snarky. It was pretty sarcastic. He was like four at the time. So as smart as he is, I could tell it was a mirror moment. I could tell that he definitely was mimicking me and he was learning things that I didn't want him to learn from me. I thought about it. I prayed about it. How am I going to change this? Somehow I've got to undo this. And in the future, I have to do a better job of teaching my kids the right way to behave, avoiding as many mistakes as I can so they don't have to go back and try to fix things later. Because as hard as it is to stay on the right path, it's a lot harder to get yourself back onto that path. But there are also awesome things that kids learn and pick up from their parents. Here's Lindsay again. It's really encouraging when your kid wants to do something that they've seen you do. My oldest, on the one hand, wants to be either a priest or a NASA scientist, and on the other hand, really likes to knit, which I think is super fun, kind of unexpected, but he's seen me knitting and he saw the joy I got from it and that I could create things and give them as gifts to other people and things like that. We gave him a knitting loom for Christmas one year, and he works and works at it, and he learns from his mistakes, and he asks for help, and being able to share something that I love with my kids like that to show them a skill that I've learned or something creative that I enjoy and that it feels life-giving to me to share that with them and see them get excited about it 
is a really beautiful and wonderful thing. I love this picture of a little boy knitting. My husband and I also will train for races now and then, but our kids see us preparing for races and they want to go do a fun run or they want to go for a run around the block. And on the one hand, they're learning the beauty of physical exercise and how that feels and how it's good to take care of your body. And they're also seeing a side of us and they're seeing how we persevere when it gets hard and they're seeing the joy of accomplishing something that we've worked for. They're learning those things from us just from a natural part of who we are. Often, especially at a certain age, kids are absorbing and learning so much about specialized topics like dinosaurs and they actually teach the parents. I don't know a lot about space. Space kind of freaks me out. But my son reads about the International Space Station and things that could happen on Mars in however many years. And he's so fascinated by it and excited about it that it makes me excited about it, too. So I think there's something really beautiful in that exchange of ideas. We can see other sides of the people that we love. And I can see, who knows, maybe he will be a NASA scientist. Maybe he won't. Maybe he just loves space. And that's it's a hobby or it's something else. But I think when we can see the other facets of our children. And I think when our children can see those facets of us, they're really being fully alive and we're being human. And I think those kinds of things glorify God. And cooking people, how are children to learn how to cook if their parents don't teach them? Sunday morning, my older son has decided that he makes the pancake batter. And at first that kind of terrified me. (laughs) But now I know that he can do it. I know that he's capable of more than sometimes I give him credit for. Lindsay also finds that her husband helps her to allow her children to grow in certain ways. Especially when go to the playground. My husband will show them, maybe show them how to do, oh, I bet you can do the monkey guards here. Give it a try. And he can see that they're capable in certain ways that I can't. And their teachers at school sometimes see that they are capable of things that we don't see. Because I have, as much as I love my kids and I know a lot about them, I think I know them pretty well. I don't know everything about them. Sarah talks about how being a parent leads to a vocation to educate, even if you weren't trained for that. Once my oldest was old enough to ask questions, I feel like my life became and continues to be a test that I never studied for, just all day, every day. It's like, why? And some of the questions are are ridiculous, like, why is that a car? And you don't, you're like, well, let's... (laughs) And they might mean, like, tell me about cars right now, or they might mean that, like, why is it here, or I think it looks funny, I want you to ask me about it. So in that sense, my role as teacher of my children was put upon me by them before I was even thinking about it, because the world is large and they want to know about it. Her daughter Miriam started asking some big questions. And Sarah wants to respect Miriam's right to a childhood and innocence when she answers these questions. It's a challenge sometimes to both answer the question that they're asking and not muddy it up with things that they aren't asking about. Like they might say, when will I go to heaven? And for them it's a very, just, it's a question like, oh, where is heaven? Can I go there? And they aren't necessarily wanting to reflect on their mortality. But when they ask you that question, then that's in my mind. I wish I had a good answer, because I feel like I get those questions all the time. Lately, it's a lot of just general questions, like, why why are people bad? Why is there evil in the world? And it's like, I wish I understood that myself. So what about kids' formal education? How do parents make decisions about that? Here's Lindsay. 
we've made those decisions based on what we know about our kids, what we know about the schools in the area, and trusting through prayer that we're making, that we're discerning the right decision for our kids. The Schlegels were really happy at their parish school, and then it closed. They were heartbroken, but they set about deciding what to do next. I made a list of every schooling option that there was, homeschool, public school, every private school we were aware of within probably half an hour from our house. Everyone else at the school was trying to figure out where their kids were going to. So we had a lot of, there were a lot of weeks of having those conversations with other parents. At that point, we had one child entering kindergarten, another child entering preschool. We knew that they were very different kids, but since they were still young, we're still learning who they are and what their learning styles were like. And we decided on another Catholic private school 15 minutes from our house, which seemed epically far away at the time compared to half a mile. But it was our third year at the school and it's been wonderful for them. For the Schlegels, parish-based Catholic schools were the answer. Jay Boren runs a different kind of Catholic school. It's a classical one. I think the classical education renaissance that's taking place is really important. I do think it is a calling, kind of a hearkening back to something that we lost somewhere along the way. This kind of school has been making a comeback for about the last 10 years. We can't recapture the past. Our schools aren't going to be staffed by nuns and brothers anymore, you know, and so the model has to change, has to adapt, certainly. But we have to be true to who we are and understand that and and really understand that if we're not, then there really is no reason for us to, to exist. One of the things Jay points out is that sending your child to a Catholic school means that you want the faith to be a priority even while the rest of the subjects are being taught. So he thinks Catholic schools should really focus on that. I wish we would quit playing on their chosen battlefield or their their field. You know, every time I... I hear Catholic school principal get up and give a recruiting pitch, and they talk about science and math, and, you know, their computer lab or their science lab. I think, we can't beat them in this realm. We, they, we don't have the funding. It's not even really our mission, you know. But I get it. That's what people are kind of geared for. We're just never going to beat them at that. So we need to give that game up. Now, we need to be good at it. We need to offer a really good education. But they can't get up and talk about their Latin curriculum or their virtue education program or their music, their beautiful uh, music program, like I do when I get up to talk, you know. And so nobody else can really talk about what I talk about because we've chosen what we want to be really good at and how we want to be different, how we want to be distinctive, and we've invested in that. Tom Burnford emphasizes the impact of faithful teachers. A Catholic school puts a faithful teacher person of faith, in contact with young people for 30 hours a week for 180 days a year. And the contact they have is a teaching and formation contact. It's in an ecclesial setting, a sacramental setting. That is more contact with faith than anything else the church has to offer. I mean, parishes do an awful lot of stuff, but the majority of parishioners are there for, you know, one to three hours a week. Social services, people come and go, tremendous work. Hospitals, you might have people 24 hours a day for a few days in a Catholic hospital, but, you know, 180 days a year, 30 hours a week of contact and witnessing and proclamation of the gospel and caring and loving, it transforms kids' lives. 
Also, Tom was educated in England, and he's pretty annoyed by the U.S. system in which our tax dollars do not follow the children. Yeah, most countries in the planet have some form of funding that follows a child to religious-based schools. And there are some programs in the United States of scholarships for young people, particularly people with limited means, to go to a Catholic school. But those funds are in the form of scholarships when there is no good public school option and they are limited. Uh, It's growing and there's progress there, but there's still a fundamental injustice in the way education is set up in this country. Something to be aware of, y'all. We know our test score is good, so we do good in education in general. If you look at the National Assessment for Education process, we're about 20 points, percentage points better in math and reading than other schools and public schools. We also know that Catholic school students end up as better Catholics. They're more likely to pray daily, to attend church more often, and to retain their Catholic identity as an adult and donate more than those who didn't go to Catholic school. And I understand there's lots of different ways for Catholic education to happen. Parents have to choose what's right for them, but dang it, these things work. That's why I believe in them and I'm passionate about them. Okay, so if you're the president of the National Catholic Educational Association, you really have to send your kids to Catholic school, right? Given what I do for a living, there wasn't a lot of choice, right? You got to send your kids to Catholic school. That's what I wanted. And as we got to know the community of St. Peter's and only, we loved it and it worked well for our kids. But, you know, my son Sam had some trouble. He doesn't learn the same way as most kids learn. And it turned out that St. Peter's was not a good fit for him. So, not definitive yet, but he's probably going to be going to the local public school, which has significantly more resources right now for a boy like Sam to help him. Sometimes our little Catholic schools just can't accommodate everyone. Those are our decisions. We're the primary educators. They were difficult decisions because we love St. Peter's and our two daughters are going there. But for Sammy, who learns in a different way, he needs some special resources and Catholic schools really try and in many cases can meet many needs, but they can't meet the need of every kid. Mary Pat Donahue from the USCCB had a situation when she was a principal where a parent was asking for special consideration. In my time as a principal, I worked with a number of different families, and I can tell you about one situation in which we had a student come to the school with special needs. And in this particular situation, something that was a school policy was really difficult for this student. And the parent came in and said, you know, you're asking my son to do something that's really just, he's just not capable of doing that. And at first it was interesting in talking with the teachers, there was a little bit of bristling, a little bit of, wait a minute, everybody has to do this. And then I think slowly we began to determine that this parent knows this child the best and is only asking us to reconsider something we always do in light of what this child needs. Certainly, you know, when there's a good reason like that, it's a great reminder to us that the parent is the the primary educator. Accommodations are something that Jay's school has to consider as well. If a child has some kind of learning challenge, whether we can accommodate that or not is a question. So we spend a lot of time looking at it and seeing whether we can or not. But what plays a lot heavy into that decision is what the parent's expectation is. Like, are they going to drop them off and think that we can do this? 
you know, and then expect miraculous things. If they do, then this isn't going to be the place for them. But if they understand what our limitations are going to be, but they still want this type of school for their children, then then we try to make it work. And Jay trusts the parents to make decisions about whether the child is ready to move up a grade. I, at the end of the day, leave that to the parents. We make our recommendation and we kind of give them all of the options and try to lay out some of the future consequences that could come about that you may not think of at this point. 20 is a lot different than 21, right? And it's not when you're there six and seven, it doesn't seem. But we let them make that decision because they know their children best. I trust that they know. So we're there to help and hopefully really good help. But we're there to assist, not to to replace. Jay understands how hard it is for parents when their kids are struggling and how hard it can be for teachers when the parents are upset about it. I tell teachers that all the time. You can get frustrated with the parent. You have to realize that's their child. You're worried about 15, 16, 17. They're worried about one. Now, they need to realize the reverse of that is true, too. And so I tell parents that all the time. It's like, I understand that this is your child, but Mrs. So-and-so has to deal with 17, not just yours. Both sometimes need that that reminder. We accept this notion as parent as primary educator. And when it's working in our favor, we all love it. But on occasion, yes, I have encountered situations where the family in question had values that were pretty much contradictory, certainly to my own personal and, and, you know, in some ways to something that the school might value. And this tension is difficult. This is Mary Pat again. She is a product of Catholic schools as well. I was in elementary school in the 70s and high school kind of in the 80s. So uh, I, I remember my Catholic education, certainly with great fondness, and wonderful, warm, caring teachers. I was well prepared for college. I can say that, excessively prepared, really, to handle certainly the writing and reading load that college brought about. But I I will say that in reflecting back, I think my Catholic education at that point in time was lacking in a a full understanding of church teaching and integrated into the rest of the curriculum. It's just something that I really dedicate myself to now in my current role. So even though that may not have been the best, it has inspired me today to look at things differently and to, uh, to work to renew that part of Catholic education. Mary Pat thinks that Catholic schools are a place of great opportunity in the church today. I do believe that Catholic schools, because they are dedicated to the integral formation of the human person, are uniquely poised to restore things to the culture that have been long missing. First of all, an understanding of the nature and dignity of the human person. Secondly, in the words of uh, Pope St. John Paul II, to restore the concept that there is truth and it can be known. Uh, And this is a witness that Catholic schools can provide. And, you know, finally, because I see them as a vehicle to enrich and grow the church herself and to reach out beyond our own and to bring more and more people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is our ultimate mission. Here's a story from Jay that illustrates the gift of the particular kind of education that his daughter is receiving. I must have been right towards the end of the school year. We were driving to school and there was a uh, business, there's like a truck, you know, that we were passing and it was a restoration business. And their little logo wasn't very big, it was on the side of their truck and it was part of a much larger logo. But in the middle, it was, you know, Michelangelo's creation on the Sistine Chapel. It's just the two, two fingers, you know, touching. And that's all it was in the midst of this larger logo. And Emma says, Daddy, look, 
That's God touching Adam's hand. She was five years old. I mean, I almost got tears in my eyes. I thought, man, what an incredible education. I'm jealous that I didn't get it. And just the pride that that instilled. And that's just from being exposed to great things. And Tom sees the impact of Catholic schooling on his children's self-discipline and responsibility. One of the beauties of a Catholic school education is deep in the culture is a fundamental respect for the dignity of every human person made in the image and likeness of God. For example, for Lucy, who is going into seventh grade, she goes up to school and she is absolutely responsible for ensuring that she has every book, a pencil, paper, and everything ready for each class at the beginning of that class, and that she's in the right room at the right time. She's given a schedule and she has to follow it, and she is absolutely responsible for that. And if she forgets her lunch, a lunch can't be dropped off after nine o'clock. It's not exactly like she'll go hungry because they do have like the requisite cheese crackers, but high degree of respecting her dignity and the decision-making ability she has at each age. And in the same way with discipline and consequences for action. And for some parents that can come across as a little, not enough handholding. It's rooted in the culture of a Catholic school, which comes out of and is born from the dignity of every human person, the belief that every child can succeed. That does not mean every child gets an A. It means that every child can succeed to the extent of their effort and their ability. We don't really have time to go into this on today's episode. We'll have to come back to it. But parents also form their children's moral conscience. Here's Sarah and Andy Safranik. It has been interesting seeing my oldest, if you will, reach the age of reason. The concept of an age of reason was kind of funny to me. It's like, well, kids just grow all the time, right? And they learn more. But having them with me all the time, it's dawning on me more what that means. That a three-year-old is capable of reasoning with you in a certain sense, but they aren't capable of really understanding things like cause and effect. Like, oh, I do this and it will always have this effect on somebody else. Or the kind of empathy that's required to realize, oh, you aren't feeling what I'm feeling, therefore my actions have consequences. And sometimes that's stressful as I see my oldest suddenly capable of, of actual guilt. Not the guilt that's like, oh no, mom's going to find out, but oh no, I did this thing and it hurt somebody. And it's hard seeing that being overwhelming on a small person and realizing that, yeah, now she's at this point where we do need to more explicitly address things that she can think in the long term now in a way that she couldn't before. Seeing her conscience awaken over this past year in particular as a parent has been both amazing and distressing all at the same time. Going from a child who does whatever she feels like doing to someone who discovers that she's doing things that she doesn't want to do. Right. Like when she comes to you and says, I feel like I want to say mean things to this person, but I don't want to say mean things to this person. It's sort of heartbreaking because you're like, you didn't have to deal with this, and this is going to be the rest of your life having to live in this brain, (laughs) in this world. And really, I mean, that's why the sacrament of confession at this time is so important because that is what gives you the grace to deal precisely with that. 
As I wrote this episode, I realized that I have a lot of material on teaching children to pray, so I just have to do an episode separately on that. Speaking of which, y'all, it's time for me to start picking my topics for 2020, so please send me ideas if you have them. You can do that by commenting on the blog show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. I'm going to end this episode with a beautiful reflection from Lindsay Schlegel. Nothing will ever negate my being a daughter of God. I could live to be 100. I could go old, you know, Old Testament style, live to be like 700. And I still will always be a daughter of God. I will always be a child in that sense. And understanding that and accepting it means there's a whole lot less that I have to try to carry on my own. I can lean on God. There's the sacraments, the saints, the community that we're in or that we help to build around ourselves. None of this are we supposed to be doing on our own. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything with the notable exception of the music. Thanks, everyone.